o'clock. Time for Plan B with Rebecca Davis. Uh, Rebecca, very, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, John. 45 organisations wrote to Parliament this week to complain about the inadequate nature of the public participation on offer when it comes to selecting new gender commissioners. Um, Public participation is something that I've always struggled to understand. What exactly does it mean? When is it sufficient and when is it insufficient? My colleague Pippa Hudson earlier today was chatting to the city and to Roxy Davis of the Musenberg Surf School about a process of public participation around planned uh, redevelopments in the Musenberg area. And there were apparently 500 people at a public meeting yesterday, and they appear to feel as if they were listened to. So is that proper consultation, or is it only proper consultation when what some of the more vocal members of the consulted with community get what they want? And if they don't get what they want, then it's inadequate public participation. How do you see it? Sure, John. You've laid out quite a case there. That's a frightfully leading question, Mercy. This is the kind of thing that sounds boring, right? Public participation, commissioners, etc. But it's actually not. It goes to the heart of what it means to be a democracy, right? And you, you raise a good question there. What is enough public participation? So let's give the example of these gender commissioners, right? The Commission for Gender Equality needs new gender commissioners because the current ones are absolutely rubbish. So Parliament's Women's Committee puts out a statement saying, an ad rather, saying, you know, we've shortlisted these candidates. No information as to how they shortlisted these candidates, by the way. Here they are. Please, public, submit your comments on them. And then you click on the link and you find, first of all, there is no information about the candidates beyond their degrees. Nothing to say, oh, this person's done good work in gender, which is really the only criterion for appointment as a gender commissioner. Then you're like, okay, I do know this person, and actually she's been involved in a terrible criminal case. So I'll leave my comments. But you have 2,000 characters to do so, not even words, 2,000 characters, which is about the length of a tweet. And also you only have 10 days to do this. So if you're busy and you can't get to it, well, that's that. And your window is passed, and then this terrible person will get appointed as a commissioner, and that's all that can be done. So that's an example of how... A current process of public participation is clearly inadequate and people are complaining about it, 45 organizations. But it happens all the time, John. It happens all the time. It's most evident perhaps when it goes to court. For instance, Greenpeace. Greenpeace just went to court to stop Shell searching for oil and gas off the wild coast. And one of the reasons they went to court and were successful was because Shell and the government had not done the required community consultation, right? That is a, a fairly clear example. Nifuna Kwasi has gone to court to try to block the city of Cape Town's proposed unlawful eviction bylaw because they say that their contributions were also ignored. But that brings us to the other question, John, which is the one you posed, which is right. Often what happens is that concerned parties or activists will make submissions and then they will simply be ignored, or at least there is no evidence of what they've said being incorporated in the final decision or in the final um, policy. So an example of that, for instance, is that the Black Sash has been campaigning for months, since May 2021, to have the current social relief distress grant, that's the 350 rand COVID grant paid out monthly, extended. Yesterday, reports in the Daily Maverick that that's not going to happen. In fact, it may be changed into some other form of grant, but basically that won't happen. And obviously Black, Black Sash, I spoke to you this morning, saying, well, we we gave you all this evidence-based submission from poor people, from within the economic empirical background, saying why we need this grant. 
and now you've just ignored it. Why, why is that the case? So I think some of the frustration comes in, John, about the fact that when government makes these decisions, they very rarely engage in any further discussion, right? They don't say, oh, well, you residents of Leesenburg, 500 of you said exactly why you don't want this and you gave us this information, but we've decided to go ahead regardless because of X. All too often, people have to go to court to find out those reasons. So perhaps a better way forward when it comes to public participation would be for the government just to be more transparent about their decisions. I mean, obviously, we can't all get what we want. We understand that government has to make unpopular decisions and decisions that civil society won't like. But at the very least, they should be forced to at least consider the submissions made before them. And I think this is the basic thing, John. Government seems to view public participation as an irritating box-ticking exercise. You know, you do it just so you can say you've done it so you won't get taken to court on that basis. But it's actually a really valuable resource. The whole point is that none of us know know everything. MPs very much included, for instance. Here you have the public who are able, in a sort of crowdsourced Wikipedia type way, able to give you a whole bunch of information you might not have access to. Why not use those resources rather than go into it with a predetermined outcome and ride roughshod over the whole notion of democratic process? You couldn't hear it, but I was singing the Hallelujah Chorus underneath your remarks, Rebecca. Oh, lovely, lovely. Um, a survey from the Open Society providing the first empirical support of the notion that most South Africans support Russian withdrawal from Ukraine, except those who think, who know that the Open Society has links to George Soros and believe that the devil sits at the right hand of George Soros. <laughs> that is unfortunately true. But this is interesting, Don, because very rarely we get a global survey of attitudes, which is to say, one that, like in this case, has taken place in 21 different countries where everyone has asked the same questions, except, interestingly, in Egypt and Saudi Arabia, where apparently they couldn't ask political questions because that would be too sensitive. Another reminder that for all its flaws, South Africa is still, in fact, uh, an open society, shall we say. So interesting about attitudes towards the the Ukraine war because we ha- are constantly told by people on both sides that know the true opinion of the South African public is X or Y. Well, according to this, 59% of South Africans feel that Russia should withdraw its occupation from Ukraine, which is a useful stat, I think, if you ever get into this argument. Only 19% agree that Ukraine should give up territory now controlled by Russia. In general, however, sub-Saharan Africa is not interested in military support for Ukraine. Only 21% support military support for Ukraine. But there were other questions asked to do with climate change and cost of living crisis, which I also found interesting, John. This one stood out for me. In sub-Saharan Africa as a whole, fewer people think their country is going in the wrong direction than in the USA. So we are generally happier with the quality of our government than Americans, which is really quite something. And I think owes a lot to the kind of polarizing discourse in that country, because you can imagine that both Democrats and Republicans might feel that way. In South Africa, to a hint of the the challenges faced by environmental campaigners here, less than 30% of respondents selected climate change as one of the most important challenges facing the world. And obviously, we understand that realistically, if you had to ask me right now what was top of my plate, I would certainly say cost of living rather than climate change, even though I know rationally the order in which those two things should be placed. But it does give you a hint as to how do you make inroads in educating people about climate change when sometimes it seems that our problems are so much more immediate and acute.
And Rebecca, I have a vague idea of what Peppa Pig is, but it's only an extremely vague idea because <laughs> I, I suspect because my children were um, Peppa Pig audiences a very, very long time ago. But Peppa Pig introducing the first same-sex family, I believe. That's right, John. You know, it's been quite a week. I also just got an email saying that for the first time in U.S. history, two gay congressional candidates will face off in a congressional race, a Democrat and a Republican, both gay going head to head. But I thought, who cares, John? Because on Tuesday, in a Peppa Pig episode, Penny Polar Bear, a much-loved character, I'm saying much-loved, I actually never watched a full episode, a much-loved character explained to Peppa Pig, I live with my mummy and my other mummy, and the world did not end. What that means, you see, John, if you need me to connect the dots here, is that Penny Polar Bear has two female polar bear parents, i.e. a same-sex family arrangement here. And she further elaborated, Penny did, one mummy is a doctor and one mummy cooks spaghetti. I've been really chewing that over in my mind, John. Does that mean that the mummy who cooks spaghetti is a pasta chef? Or is this Penny's delightful way of saying her mummy is a housewife? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Nonetheless, John, definitely to be celebrated as the parent of a toddler, I can tell you it's, it's bleak out there on TV. It is bleak. Thank you very much, Rebecca Davis.